everybody. I'm Ashley and, and you're listening to the Mito podcast. Today, our guest is Stephanie Miller. She lives out in Auburn, California. How are you, Stephanie? Hi, I am doing well. Thank you. It's so good to be here. We're excited to have you here. And I'm going to tell our guests, uh, or our listeners, our guests, you're our guest. <laughs> Tell our listeners that this is going to be a two-part episode. So the first episode while we're talking to Stephanie is going to be about her Mito journey. And then the second episode is going to be talking about um, IVF. So why don't we go ahead and get started and let us know how your Mito story kind of started. Well, my Mito journey honestly starts at the end, but my, um, I had a really good pregnancy. I got pregnant, um, as a 19 year old, all on my own. Um, my parents were not happy about that. Um, I definitely was removed from my home, not for being pregnant. I found out I was being pregnant. I was, I'm sorry. I found out I was pregnant after I had um, been kicked out of my house, but I did a pregnancy um, right out of high school at 18 years old. It was a really easy pregnancy. And I gave birth to a beautiful, tiny daughter, four pounds, four ounces, just two weeks early. And uh, she was a little bit jaundice, um, had some trouble um, with breastfeeding. She just really wasn't sucking that well and um, really not taking to either a bottle or um, the breast. So we spent about a week in the hospital until uh, they had told us that she had gained enough weight to be sent home. So I um, took her home with me um, for, for about, I think seven or eight days. And I just remember calling my mom so confused. She's all she's doing is sleeping. I can't get her to eat. Um, and they had actually taught me in the hospital, um, how to, um, tape a, uh, tube to my finger and use a syringe to have her suck on my finger and just kind of, um, inject it because she just was not willing to, um, or didn't even have the capability, I should say, not willing, um, to eat. So she was like, you need to get that baby in the hospital really quick. I called my, um, pediatrician and she agreed, please take her to the hospital as soon as possible. Um, so back, we went to the hospital and, oh, it's been so long. I'm sorry. Uh, we spent a night, a night in the hospital um, and she had lost six ounces just in that 24 hours that we were there. So they sent us down to Sacramento to, um, a bigger, better hospital to see, um, if we could run some tests. And I spent the next 10 and a half, 11 weeks actually living in the hospital. I slept on a, one of those pullout chairs that converts to a couch. They, uh, fed me hospital meals. Um, and, uh, Raylan just had back-to-back, -back, uh, surgeries, tests. They couldn't tell me anything. She, uh, did not come out of her first surgery, which was to put, um, a GI tube in her stomach to make sure she was getting enough nutrients, uh, did not come off the anesthesia very well. So they actually intubated her and she spent uh, the rest of her time in the hospital intubated. 
Um, we had the pick line in the head, pick line in the chest, tubes all over the place. Um, and this uh, poor, poor baby was just not growing or feeding or nothing. And uh, in, in short, I, I could spend so long just drawing out the details. Um, but in short, she just really could not ever come off that um, ventilator. And um, eventually after I think it was her fifth, maybe sixth surgery as a two and a half month old, um, that, uh, she coded for the third time and they could not bring her back. And so, um, it was at that point that they asked me to make a choice to keep her on life support or, um, to let her go. And now that feels like an impossible decision. And, and in the middle of it, it was, it felt easier because it, there was just so much pain. She was on a 24 seven fentanyl drip as a two month old and knowing now what, how terrible and how addictive and how powerful fentanyl is, it just changes the perspective that I had at 19. Um, but the doctor uh, more or less said sh she'll never come off life support and we'll be lucky if we can keep her another couple of days, even with the life support. Um, so we removed her from life support in the morning and um, with, with no answers. Uh, they did test after test she saw neurosurgeons and specialists and they brought in people from other hospitals and they talked about sending us to um, San Francisco to their children's hospital um, because they really just had no idea what was going on. It was a failure to thrive, but more than that. Um, it was through the autopsy that I was able to get answers and uh, that sh the autopsy showed those ragged red fibers that are so indicative of the those mitochondrial diseases. And um, through that, they were able to tell me that um, she had uh, Lee's syndrome. So I did get answers, but not until after. And it's one of those honestly blessings in disguise because Though there is such little research on, on every part of this, specifically Lee's syndrome is just one of those that that's, it so often ends in death and too soon and too horribly. So there was that part of me that was thankful that I never, I didn't know until after she was gone because I'm, I'm thankful for the closure and I'm thankful for those answers, but not knowing kept me going and kept trying for more and something must be out there. And at 19, I, I was living on the streets. There was so much of me that had all of this guilt that what did I, what part of me did something wrong? Was I not eating enough, not have the right nutrition? I was in a bad space mentally, physically. So there was so much of that, that I was caught up. And then 
finding out that Lee's syndrome is genetically passed down was a whole other realm of guilt that I had to work through um, because that's not anybody's fault, even though it really, it really does feel like that. Even still to this day, I, there is a part of me that carries that guilt, even though I know that it's not fair to me or fair to her to feel that way. So did you, I have a bunch of questions. <laughs> um, totally. I'm open. <laughs> uh, did you ever get tested for mitochondrial disease then? I did. Um, I actually was terrified to do it right then and there. I didn't really want to know what I already knew. And so I, I put it off until um, my husband and I started having the discussion about kids and it was, it's needed at that point. You go through it once. And I told him, if we go down this road, then I 100% am not doing anything until I have been genetically tested. And we know with an open mind and heart what we're doing. So I actually got tested in 2019, um, which was oh, seven or eight years after everything. So I really hid from it from a long time. So when you got, so what type of test did you take? Was it saliva, blood, or tissue? It was a, it was a blood test. And I uh, really had to talk the geneticist into testing me. Um, I sent her, oh, well, it's, it's probably a 22 pound box full of medical records from my daughter. I sent all of those to her. I said, you know, this is what happened to me. And we spent an hour on the phone talking and she was like, you know what, as, tr as horrible as that whole thing was, I don't think she had Lee's syndrome. I don't think that you have this, everything that you're telling me, you're too healthy. You're, there's no way. And I was like, can we just do it anyways? <laughs> like a, for peace of mind for myself. Well, I didn't know that somewhere along the lines, the autopsy that was in the medical records did not make it to her desk. So she called me back 30 minutes later going, I made a huge mistake. We absolutely need to test you. I came across some more paperwork and I really apologize for misleading you. Um, so testing took about, oh, we started the journey in February of 2019. I got tested soon after probably the beginning of March and didn't get, um, those test results back from June. So that was like so much waiting and anxiety and, oh, so many what ifs go through your head in all that moment. Um, so when I did sit down to talk with her about test results, um, I really was, uh, my husband was convinced we were going to be okay. I was convinced nothing was ever going to be okay and that I would never be able to have children and everything would be horrible. So I did the blood test and um, my, what is it called? Uh, homoplasmy, something like that. I don't know all the technical terms. I apologize. Anyways, my percentage of mutation sits at 84%. So after realizing that she was like, you're kind of a walking miracle. Like you don't have any health issues. You are um, taking good care of yourself. We're kind of impressed. 
as you stand. So um, I saw red, heard nothing there. We probably sat in there for another 20 minutes and I don't remember anything that was said. Um, so we took that, we took that news and I went home and cried all night. Um, but right before we were leaving, uh, my geneticist said, Hey, I am not supposed to be sharing this as if it's medical advice. So please know that I'm just telling you this as a friend, but there is a thing out there in the world that exists called three parent IVF. Look it up and good luck. So I spent the next six months learning everything I could about this crazy three-parent IVF and what that means for somebody like me. Well, before we get into uh, talking more about that, uh, Megan, do you have any questions so far? I'm just amazed at your journey. Just what you've said, 19 is such a young age to go through so much, so much. And I commend you on that. You seem like you are an extremely strong person to come through that. And, you know, you have your eyes opened and you're moving forward. And, you know, I think, I think that you're amazing. So um, I'm sorry that you have experienced so much that you have. That's, that's a hard thing for anyone, especially a 19 year old. You're just you're a baby yourself and, you know, going through all of that. I mean, yeah, I, we all think about, you know, when we got our diagnosis for our children and, you know, I wasn't that young, but it's just so hard. And, you know, for you to experience what you did, you know, um, I commend you. I commend you for being so strong and moving forward. And thank you. That's you have to go through all of this alone. I know that you said, when prior to being pregnant, you were kicked out of the house, you're living on the streets, you went through your pregnancy. Had I def- yeah, I definitely was alone through my pregnancy. Um, unfortunately, the boyfriend that I had at the time, um, right around the time that I got pregnant, got into methamphetamines. And I was both too foolish and too prideful to understand the situation that I had put myself in and stayed with him. And while I kept a sober pregnancy and honestly, the only reason that I made it through that 10 months of my life sober was because I was pregnant. And, um, I definitely did pregnancy on my own. I was five months pregnant, had just found out that I was having a girl and, uh, slept in a public park bathroom. Um, however, when I had my baby, the family showed back up and it was really strenuous and there was so much tension, but my parents knew that I was a baby having a baby. And as much as I had run away from what they had given me and tried to pave my own way in a world I wasn't ready to be in. Um, They really picked me back up and pointed me in the right direction. And my mom was always at the hospital, always making phone calls, 
making sure that my daughter had insurance, I had insurance, everything was being kept in line. And honestly, she's really the only thing that was holding me together. And my dad was very supportive, but very hurt. And um, I I really put my family through the ringer. And it's, it, looking back at everything that I did to them, because I wanted to be selfish and independent I am eternally grateful for every single one of them showing up and being the family that my daughter needed because I didn't deserve it you know I I agree with Megan I have to commend you because a lot of times not not necessarily with the light of a journey but with any person that gets pregnant at a young age you just sound so mature and that you've taken your story and you have grown from it and achieved so much from where you were in that, that headspace to where you are now. And it's definitely a pleasure to talk to you and hear like, I mean, you, you're, you're being, which I appreciate, not that you would lie to us in any way, but you're being so honest, like that rawness with you about telling us the things that you don't really have to, I mean, you don't have to share any of that. And I, I just really appreciate you, you being open and wanting to give like the whole story. Cause I, I agree. That's, that's just such an amazing, crazy background. And right. I can't imagine how terrified you were. Yeah, to say the least. Yeah. I mean, being pregnant on its own is really scary. Um, can, I can't even imagine like being pregnant at 18 or 19. I knew nothing about the world. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> going and then like even like as as a, a, a older adult <laughs> uh, when I was pregnant there were so many things I never really thought about um and this is gonna sound stupid but it really felt like I was a cocoon like I had this alien inside me and I never really thought about that like you have this little parasite <laughs> it's just taking all your energy all your vitamins your life source Absolutely. and so to feel that at 19, 18 and 19 years old, that's just, I can't imagine. And then directly after that, having known that she had Lee syndrome. Um, and I, I agree. I think it probably was better. You found out afterwards. I mean, you, you never, you always want to have the discovery. You want to know what's wrong. So I'm glad that you found that out, but I'm glad that you were able to push forward and, and try to figure things out. But with everyone with Mito, just hearing your story, I can hear all the different drugs and things that they used that they shouldn't have used had they known it was Mito. Yeah. But again, eight years ago, they maybe wouldn't have known that either. So, and Mito in general, I mean, every, every year we find out something different, but you always look back and like 20 years ago, we still have the same story. So it's just, it's a hard one. Well, thank you so much for sharing. It's Raylan, right? That was her name. Do you Mm -hmm. do anything now like to, well, when was her birthday? Her birthday is two and a half weeks before mine. So it's um, uh, February 5th. 
Do you do anything to celebrate her or? Is it I don't, it's, you know, I, I am still redef redefining is the wrong word, rediscovering everything that I went through so much as, as been blocked out and forgotten and just hidden away to try to just protect my own sanity and my broken heart. Um, I have my entire uh, right side of my back is tattooed in her honor. Um, and then she is uh, buried very close to my, my current home, which I really like. Uh, although um, I do find it hard to go sit with her. I do um, talk to her often and let her know that she's never been forgotten as, as far as I go through this journey. It's really all because of her. Um, my grandmother always um, sends a picture of the flowers that she sets out with the church um, every year on her birthday, which I really appreciate. I think that's very sweet of her. That's beautiful. That's awesome. Yeah, we talk, we've talked before on our podcast, you know, with our different Mito journeys and how we compartmentalize things in our brain because there's only so much we can deal with. We've talked about, you know, like when you know your child has a disease that they're going to die from, um, letting yourself think about that for a minute, but then you have to move on. You have to, in order to preserve, like you said, preserve yourself and for myself, obviously my son is still with us and to be a good mother to him, you know, you can't dwell on those things. Um, so, you, you know, I completely understand when you say you're still dealing with it and it's, it's hard to, you know, really think about all the time. Um, mm -hmm. But it does sound like, you know, you're honoring her in the way that helps you to move forward as well. Yeah, you, you become a different person. You're not the, you're not the person that you grew up with when you have that life event and same thing with compartmentalizing. Um, I did the same thing with Angie. I would have I had that moment, we, we were told everything because she had Lee syndrome too. And um, I had to make a decision. I was like, I don't want her to see me cry. I don't want her to see this really sad part. She's going to, I can't protect her from everything, but I need to pull myself out. And I need to figure out a way to just push all that aside when she's with me. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you, you definitely become a different person, but it also helps you grow. It helps you be able to deal with different parts of your life and, and different conversations and different people, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Speaking to compartmentalization, one of the things that I um, absolutely love to do in the hospital was make the nurses tell me exactly what they were doing. I just wanted to learn what is this for? Where is this going? How does this help? What do we think this is going to do with what happens next? What happens if this doesn't work and learning all of the technical terms and they're all, you know, they've all escaped me now, 10 years later, but, um, that was something that I had to have. And the nurses, especially the night nurses, you go, you, you live in a hospital for so long and, and nothing seems real when you're in there. It is a total time warp. And I ended up just becoming the person that slept all day and was up all night. And those night nurses were my friends. They kept me 
entertained, asked me questions. And um, I had a nurse who uh, also had a daughter at 16. And while her daughter was fine and, and didn't have to struggle through any medical hardships or anything like that, she, you know, being a young mom, she knew the struggle, being a nurse, she knew the complications, and she was always there for me, always letting me know what was going on, keeping me encouraged, keeping me informed in a way I could understand. And those are the people that I still think about to this day. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about Raylan um, and letting us know your Myra's story. For everyone that is listening, again, this is going to be a two-part podcast. We just got done talking to Stephanie about her mind of journey and her story with her daughter, Raylan. Um, the next half of our podcast, which we'll, we'll start a new one, is going to be talking about three-person IVF, um, what you've discovered, and what process you are in at the moment. So thank you everyone for listening. This is the Mito podcast. You can find us on mitopodcast.com. You can find, uh, you can email us at mitopodcast at gmail. We're on Facebook or on Instagram, and we love to hear from everyone. Um, so if you have any stories to tell or comments, please let us know, email us or comment on any of those sources. Oh, and we're also on YouTube. <laughs>